It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That created stocks with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, to the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Speed it up and I've seen got no suits. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, but the system gangs and the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom, I say. No, it's Bloom. Ah, the hour of doom and bloom. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an hour of honesty in a dishonest world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 700 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a codger with a calling, and that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. And I am Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, a heck of a gal, if I may say so myself. Why, thank you. Together, we are the watchers on the wall. And we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a cantankerous koala? Ha! Our attorney says... Don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or patient-provider relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. What good advice that is, but we're here to help if it isn't. What's the stuff, Cream Puff? We learn as much from you guys as you do from us, so connect with us. It's easy. Here's the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how. Well, please feel free to email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. That's Dr. Bones Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook. Excuse me. At our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We also have a couple pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. You can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. And our video cast, which is live and you can interact on Wednesdays, the first and third of every month at AroundTheCabin.com. Wow, that is a lot, buddy. <laughs> and that's not even everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That, that's very true. Uh, I just want to 
ask everyone to please follow and like us on our Twitter, Facebook, and all yeah. those YouTube channel. You'll get a lot of great information. And the latest information because you put up the articles and the videos when they come out. So exactly. you'll get the news first. That's right. Before anyone else does. Speaking of in the news, a deadly outbreak of Legionnaire's disease that killed three people on Sick and 50 is under investigation in the South Bronx section of New York City. Health officials said on Wednesday, the new wave of Legionnaire's disease, a type of pneumonia caused by bacteria, has been recorded since July 10th. It's quadrupled the number of cases recorded in the last outbreak in which 12 people in the Bronx fell ill last December. The cause was traced to contamination in cooling towers at Co-op City, the world's largest cooperative housing development. The disease is caused by Legionella, a bacteria found in certain plumbing systems, including hot tubs, humidifiers, cooling towers, and hot water tanks. It is spread by breathing in mist from water, but luckily can't be spread from person to person. Symptoms for Legionnaires include fever, cough, chills, and muscle aches. Make sure your air conditioning filters are replaced regularly to avoid becoming victim of this deadly disease. Well, that is good advice. You know that we have had issues. If you've been following our podcast, you know that we've been having problems with black mold, which has caused us to do a lot of reconstruction <laughs> to our house. What a mess uh. that has been. But you know what? I think I'm feeling a little better. I was doing having a lot of sneezing and coughing attacks. And <laughs> you mean like I just had? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm better. I don't know if you are, Amy, but I am definitely better. I have seasonal allergies, but, you know, it's just life. What are you going to do? True dat. That's all I've got to say about that. Hey, also in the news, if you've ever taken a hands-on wound care class with us, you've heard us talk about flesh-eating bacteria and... Now, a Virginia fisherman stabbed by a catfish barb has died of the disease, and that occurred in Virginia. 75-year-old Charlie Horner was fishing on July 18th in the Rappahannock River, about 130 miles south of Washington, D.C., when a cut on his leg became infected with Vibrio vulnificus, a deadly river bacteria we talked about actually a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. It started immediately to infiltrate soft tissue, causing necrosis, otherwise known as tissue death, and spread rapidly. Doctors tried to deal with the disease by amputating Horner's leg, Ugh. which is what they have to do in these cases, but he died three days later oh, in any no. case. It's, it's a shame. Infections from Vibrio vulnificus are fatal actually about 50% of the time, according to the U.S. Center for Disease Control. There are normally about 95 U.S. cases each year, and besides tissue death, the disease is characterized by fever and chills, vomiting and diarrhea, leading to septic shock. Now, in a 2009 study, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, we were there actually in that area just three weeks ago, found that an increase in infections in area waters was linked to pollution and unusually hot summers. Now, I mentioned this story simply to point out the importance of hand protection when you're dealing with contaminated soil and water. We caught a few catfish actually at Sanibel Island in Florida just recently and we had to protect ourselves from getting injured by the spine barbs in the fins. Charlie's death might have been avoided if he had put on gloves for protection, but I guess it's hard to teach an old fisherman new tricks. Yeah, rest no in, kidding. <laughs> rest in peace, Charlie. Aww. Well, give me a minute to get a little housekeeping out of the way before our next topic. Are you ready to deal 
with medical issues in times of trouble, well, get a copy of our Amazon best-selling The Survival Medicine Handbook, and you'll get a head start in any disaster epidemic. You'll get all sorts of important tips that'll keep your family healthy. And you know what? It is all in plain English. Imagine that. So put old Dr. Bones and lovely Nurse Amy in your survival library. Head over to Amazon.com or get a copy personally autographed to you by going to our website at doomandbloom.net. Now, for those of you who kept our book on the most wish list for three years in a row on Amazon, this week, the shorter and less expensive abridged version of our book published by Skyhorse Publishing the Ultimate Survival Medicine Guide is going to be available. Yes, August 4th, 2015. That's absolutely right. And you know, summer's in full swing. That's the time when we head out and speak all over the country. And guess what? We're all over the country. We just can't <laughs> wait to get on the road again, yeah. as Willie Nelson said. And this time, we're going out of the country, just barely, to Niagara Falls, Ontario, for the Survival Expo that they're having there. Here's Right. It's called The Survival Expo. That's right. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you about other places where you can come and say hi to us this summer. Absolutely. Besides Canada, we've got two other shows in August. Oh, my goodness. It's wow. a busy, busy August. Ouch. August 21st will be in Denver. That's the Survival... Survival... Self-Reliance <laughs> Expo. I got survival on the brain. Well, we all do. I know. <laughs> and like I said, Denver, Colorado. We have a 4 p.m. suture class. If you guys live around the area and you have some time, we would love to have you on our class. Yep. Sign up on the medical classes page of doomandbloom.net. That's right. And next in August is August 29th and 30th, Lawrenceville, Georgia. That's a two-day show. It's the RK Prepper and Gun Show. And we will be teaching a suture class on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. That will be August 30th. Again, you can sign up at the medical classes page of doomandbloom.net. That's not all. No, it is not all. We will be at Prepper Camp, which is located in Saluda, North Carolina, September 18th, 19th, and 20th. And we will be doing presentations those three days. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's a camping event. Wow. So you could still stay at a hotel if you want, but a lot of people are camping there, and it's going to be a real community group. Oh, it sounds like a lot of fun. And I think we have a couple of shows that we'll have it later in September. I think we're going to be in, no, in October, is it? October 3rd will oh, be right. Houston, Texas, another Self-Realize Expo, a one-day event. And Louisville, Kentucky brings the NPS Expo. That's a two-day event, October 10th and 11th. And we have suture classes on both of those events also. But you can find out all of that information on doomandbloom.net and the medical classes page. So let's talk about another event that happened in the news. There was a magnitude 6.3 earthquake that rattled a wide area of south-central Alaska this week. The U.S. Geological Survey reported. But there were no reports of serious damage or injuries. Thank goodness. Yeah. The tremor struck about 6.30 p.m. Alaska time in a remote area about 40 miles south of an active volcano near Cook Inlet. And 140, 140 miles southwest of Anchorage, the state's largest city. It originated about 70 miles underground, the USGS said. The quake generated shaking that was felt as far away as the port of Valdez, about 240 miles northeast of the tremor's epicenter. 
The quake was also felt in numerous communities of the Kenai Peninsula where one person reported on a Facebook posting that cars parked began to move. Oh my God. That's just a little scary. Earthquakes of that magnitude, while capable of causing substantial damage if they occur near densely populated areas, are fairly common throughout the seismically active Alaska, part of the Pacific Rim of Fire that includes the entire west coast of the U.S. and east coast of Asia. A much stronger quake measured at a magnitude of 6.9 struck Fox Island in the Aleutians chain, about 950 miles southwest of Anchorage. But was of little consequence, since next to no yeah, one well, nobody lives. lives there. <laughs> right. It's a little desolate out there. I think you wrote an article on earthquake preparedness. Oh, yeah. I've written a couple of articles on that. Certainly, we find earthquakes all over the place. And luckily, most of them don't really cause much of an effect. But Thank goodness. You need to know what to do. And uh, you'll find it all on doomandbloom.net just check it out earthquake preparedness use the search engine on the right upper sidebar on the main page all right well let's see what I'll, oh you know i want to talk a, a little bit about other things happening this summer you know the summer the coast of the carolinas has seen more than its share of shark attacks but although shark attacks are rare most people have run afoul of some critter at one point or another in their lives you know, in the United States, there are millions of animal bites every year, resulting in thousands, hundreds of thousands, actually, of ER visits. And in this show, I want to talk a little bit about the furry kind. We're not going to talk about sharks. We're going to talk about the furry kind. But you'll find articles and podcasts on snake bites and insect bites, spider bites, stuff like that, over on our website. Now, wild animals will bite when threatened, ill, or to protect their territory or offspring. Most, however, will avoid humans if at all possible. And in the grand majority of cases, you're going to find pets like cats, dogs, rodents like rabbits, things like that, are the perpetrators. Now, most animal bites affect the hands in adults and the face, head, and neck in children. Dog bites are responsible probably for a thousand emergency care visits every day in the United States. And according to a 1994 study, dog bites are 6.2 times more likely to be incurred by male dogs, 2.6 times more likely by dogs that haven't been neutered, 2.8 times more likely if the dog is chained or otherwise restrained, and more commonly seen in children that are 14 years or younger than any other age group. Now, boys, as you can imagine, are much more likely to be the victims. Now, although more common, dog bites are usually more superficial than cat bites. A dog's teeth are relatively dull compared to feline's teeth. Despite this, their jaws are really powerful, and they can inflict crush injuries with bruising and damage to soft tissue. Cat's teeth are thin and sharp. Their puncture wounds tend to be deeper, and any bite could lead to infection, of course, if ignored, but cat bites inject bacteria into deeper tissues, and become contaminated more often. And rabies and tetanus are some diseases we've talked about before are just some of the infections that can be passed through a bite wound. Now, whenever a person has been bitten, there are several important actions that I'd want you to take. I want you, number one, control bleeding with direct pressure using gloves and a bandage or other barrier. Now, once you've done that, clean the wound thoroughly with soap and water. That's very important and flush the wound aggressively with a 60 to 100 cc irrigation syringe filled with clean water to help remove embedded dirt and bacteria containing saliva. Now, you, also, you can use an antiseptic to decrease the chance of infection, like 
betadine, otherwise known as 2% povidone iodine solution, or benzalkonium chloride. These are pretty good choices for animal bites. Now, when off-grid, do not close the wound if at all possible. Many animal bites are going to be stitched shut in modern emergency rooms, but this may be very inadvisable in a survival setting. Remember, this is a dirty, dirty wound. So, closing the wound could lock in dangerous bacteria if uh, if they had Vibrio vulnificus, uh, the one that poor Charlie Horner, our fisherman, had, certainly that would probably signal the end of that dog bite victim or, or cat bite victim. Now, remove any rings or bracelets in a bite wound. That's very important because if swelling occurs, it could be very difficult to remove afterwards. Uh, I want you to use an ice pack to decrease swelling, help with bruising from crush injuries and pain. Now, of course, things like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, pain relievers are good. Frequently clean and cover a recovering bite wound. That's very important. Clean drinkable water or dilute antiseptic solution. That will probably suffice, I would say, for most cases. And apply antibiotic ointment to the area. Be sure to watch for signs of infection. And this may include redness, swelling, oozing, things like that. In many instances, the site may feel unusually warm to the touch. Now, warm, moist compresses to the area will help an infected wound drain. And you can see our videos on infected wounds. We have a number right. of them on our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Now, also, consider oral antibiotics as a precaution if you're off-grid, especially after a cat bite, although amoxicillin with clavulanic acid 500 milligrams, that's uh, also known as augmentin right. in human pharmacies, uh, every eight hours for about a week. It's a good first-line therapy. Clindamycin uh, has a veterinary equivalent, too. It's called fishsin. That's 300 milligrams orally every six hours. And put it in combination with fish flocks, ciprofloxacin, mm -hmm. 500 milligrams every 12 hours in combination. These are good choices also for this type of problem. But there are a lot of other antibiotics that have been used for this. There's azithromycin, Z-Pak, metronidazole, uh, fishazole, uh, all sorts, ampicillin. A lot of these have been used as alternatives. Now, I want to just say that children that suffer animal bites could easily become traumatized by the experience. They may have a form of PTSD, actually, post-traumatic oh, yeah. stress Absolutely. syndrome. And they would definitely benefit from counseling and Tender Loving Care, TLC, That's right. in this situation. Prevention is key. Prevention is much more important. So youngsters should be informed about the risks of animal bites, should be taught to avoid stray dogs, cats, wild animals. And for goodness sake, never leave a small child unattended around animals. Without an able-bodied person to intervene, the outcome could be tragic. So this is, I think, really important so many kids wind up getting bitten by dogs and cats and things like that my possums and I, there was one recently here so make <laughs> sure that you keep an eye on your small kids now it's important to remember that humans are animals too you know in rare cases you might see bites from this source as well especially in true survival settings about 10 to 15 percent of animal bites of human bites rather become uh -huh. infected this is a pretty big percentage I believe it. because there are over 100 million bacteria mm -hmm. per milliliter in human saliva. So treat this as you would treat any contaminated wound. That's very, very important. Yep. Good advice, honey. Well, I think we're going to take a very short 
break for okay. a musical interlude. Aww. Now, we do talk about our products and the things that we do here, Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and all that stuff on our on our store at store.doomandbloom.net. But we don't have commercials from other people on this channel, at least. Uh, so I just want to give you guys a minute or so break by playing what I like to think is a nice little piece of music very relaxing ah yes you're listening to the survival medicine hour with joe and amy alton dr bones and nurse amy we'll be right back Okay, you're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Let's see, what else? We, oh, leprosy. Boy, have we ever leprosy. talked about leprosy? I don't, I don't think, think so. I don't think so. Yes, well, you know, leprosy, it, well, it's often thought to be an, an ancient disease, so a lot of people don't really think about it now. But, you know, that leprosy-causing bacteria continues to infect people even in the United States, especially in the southern United States, including in Florida, where nine people have been diagnosed with the disease so far this year. Now, what's to blame? It could be mm -hmm. the nine-banded armadillo that roams wild across much of the southeast. That's what experts are saying now. It's one of the few animals, uh, along with the coyote, that has mm -hmm. increased its range in the face of human development. So it actually is available in more area or available it, it's and actually available. lives in yeah available Wait. at your local <laughs> armadillo like, store sounds like one yeah. of your funny ads armadillo <laughs> available at, at. <laughs> grocery stores everywhere <laughs> so so anyhow it, it indeed is one of those animals that has thrived in the face of human development which is sort of interesting now they're cute i guess in an ugly pugly kind of way wait i just want to say one thing about that armadillo and thriving possums and also raccoons yep. have also adapted yes and can live very happily within urban and city areas right. we see them all the time yeah so, yep you you're... think well my goodness what are you eating <laughs> <laughs> pet Ac food mostly Ar i think yes dog, yeah dog food from the dog uh -huh. left, left out or cat, cat food yep well 
the important thing to know about armadillos is keep your distance from them, for goodness sake. Don't play with them. Don't eat them. And don't keep them as pets. Ugh, they are chock full of disease-causing microbes. Ugh. Now, okay, I may be giving the armadillo a bad rap, which is possible. I think possible. it, it kind of deserves it, though, huh? It's possible. Oh, don't say that, <laughs> poor armadillos. But uh, really what caused the Florida cases is not really known for mm-hmm. sure. But researchers do know that armadillos can transmit the disease to humans. Now, as a matter of fact, each year there are between 2 and 10 people in Florida that are diagnosed with leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease, after the scientists who discovered the microbe in 1873. Now, the strange thing is that the people infected didn't acquire that bug this year. They didn't acquire it even last year. Uh-huh. Sure enough, the incubation period, which is the time between exposure and the appearance of symptoms right. for leprosy or Hansen's disease, is two to ten years. Ten. And that makes it Who very remembers? Di- I know, right, what happened ten years what ago. What happened ten years ago? Well, that makes it very Although, difficult. Although, is this caused by a bite? Not, No, not necessarily, just uh, prolonged contact. Uh-huh. I mean, it's usually so- something or someone that you have prolonged contact with, like Arthur, your pet armadillo. Right. Right? Right. So there you go. Now, that makes the disease difficult to identify and of course it's even more difficult to identify because many doctors have never come in contact with it before i haven't no we never in 25 years i think they lightly touched on it when i was in nursing school from and that was 1983 to 87 (laughs) i can't believe that you look too young it's not yeah i don't believe it not for a second and it's not really something that's discussed too much after that you know, you go to nursing. when you graduate. Yeah, you go to nursing school, and then you go you go actually work in hospitals and in doctors' offices, and you, you, you never don't you don't come across leprosy, it. No. I never had a patient come in with symptoms. I said, "Wow, wonder if this is nope. That was not one of the things that was the issue." Well, anyhow, leprosy is not a potential problem just in Florida. It's also seen in Armadillo Paradise, the state of Texas where between 10 and 25 people, yes, Yes. between 10 and 25 people are diagnosed each year. And as a matter of fact, in Louisiana, health officials recorded eight leprosy diagnoses in 2011 and six a year from 2012 to 2014. So here's all you need to know about leprosy. Okay, you're probably the only time you'll ever hear anybody talking about it. So (laughs) listen up. And don't ask your doctor or nurse, because they probably won't know right now either. They'll have to Google it again. <laughs> That's right. You know, uh, well, the disease began infecting humans probably about 4,000 years ago, maybe more. It's a chronic condition caused by the bacterium, Mycobacterium leprae. Now, that's actually the second most common infection that occurs from a mycobacterium. The first one is tuberculosis. Now, despite victims being cast out from society in the past, leprosy is actually not that contagious. You can only catch it if you come into close and repeated contact with cough or sneeze droplets from someone with the untreated disease. So, let's talk about what it actually does. Leprosy primarily affects the skin, the nerves, outside the brain and spinal cord. Those are called the peripheral nerves. Mm -hmm. But it could also strike the eyes, uh, the thin tissue lining of the nose, the kidneys, even the male sexual organs. Now, over time, these people usually experience some loss of sensation, feeling, strength, 
things like that. And this lack of sensation, as well as the muscle weakness and sometimes paralysis that occurs with it, can lead to injuries and sometimes people lose their fingers, toes, and even nose if the disease has progressed too far. Muscle weakness could lead to a deformity of the hand that makes it look like a claw. Mm -hmm. uh, they can have difficulty walking. Uh, and people with leprosy also can get it in the blood. Now, when that happens, the bacteria slowly infiltrates the tissues under the skin and causes disfiguring sores, pale-colored bumps, pouching skin on the face. And this can lead to pretty strange facial features, as you can imagine, in which infected people develop an exaggerated brow, really big cheekbones, mm -hmm. things like that. And you put these all together, and leprosy sufferers probably look pretty darn scary, especially you can imagine what they look like to ancient societies. So many banished people with leprosy. Right. But with the advent of antibiotics in the 1940s, successful treatments began to become available. Now the disease is treatable with six months to two years of multiple therapies. In other words, two or three antibiotics given at once. Now, despite it being treatable, there are an estimated two million people around the world that have been permanently disfigured by the disease. Now, in survival settings, I think it'll be pretty hard to do much of anything for these poor folks. Nobody's going to have six months to two years of multiple antibiotics to give one patient in their community. Right. I mean, you would have to have a huge stockpile. Uh, I know. You'd be... have to be like the U.S. government stockpile. Right. That would be... <laughs> that would be about... That would be about it. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, some of us are probably going to be reduced to eating a leprosy-carrying armadillo from time to time. Mm. And, I mean, just to live. So we may just see it occurring in a survival community well, hopefully uh cooking it kills it and you're not hanging around it for a while before you do that don't keep these things in a in a pen yeah like, don't be like an armadillo pet, farmer pet, right. or an armadillo farmer right, right. <laughs> well you know i think that in this case victims of the disease are just going to probably wind up going back to an isolated lifestyle if the survival of a community depends on it let's face it and that's the hard reality that when you lose the miracle of modern medicine it really is uh, as an as an aside you know mm -hmm. even with all we know in modern times about infectious disease still not known how the leprosy bacteria actually causes any of the symptoms of the disease so it's still something that is a bit of a mystery how about Hope that hopefully we don't have a lot of patients to test it on that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Let's cure it. <laughs> okay, you're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. You know that we always talk about the importance of using all the tools in the medical woodshed, and medicinal herbs are going to be a big part of that. You know that one day the pharmaceuticals run out if indeed there is a true catastrophe and you need to know what is in the garden or what you can grow in your garden that might just have medicinal benefit that's and right that's right and so here's nurse amy and she's going to talk to you about <clears throat> fever fever few <laughs> is tanacetum parthenium and now why is it named that it's named because 2,000 years ago, it apparently saved a life of a Greek worker who fell from the roof of, you guessed it, the, the Parthenon. Wow, interesting. It's a member of the Tansy family and has been considered a good natural remedy for fevers and headaches and has been used for menstrual disorders, toothaches, and joint or nerve pain. Well, that's a lot of stuff. I'll say. 
Feverfew is a relative of dandelions and marigolds, and its tiny daisy-like flower will bloom year to year with minimal attention to your medicinal garden. Brought by colonists in the 1700s from Europe, it grows wild throughout the eastern U.S. down to South Carolina and can be found in Colorado, West Oregon, Washington, and both coasts of Canada from June to the first frost. The highly aromatic plants grow one to two feet tall with little demands regarding soil as long as it's well drained. It prefers full sun but will take light shade without much difficulty. If you grow feverfew in your garden, just take the seeds and tamp them down into the damp soil. They actually do better on top rather than below the soil surface. Harvest the leaves before the plants bloom. Now that's something that goes for a lot of plants that we use the leaves from. That's right. When the flowers bloom, the leaves of lettuce, for example, often become bitter and less palatable. That also is true for basil. Very right. much so. Right. <laughs> and boy, do we know that in South Florida, our basil bolts immediately. Oh, yeah. my goodness, it's so amazing. quickly. So you got to pick those when they're fresh. I think this occurred because plants in general want mm -hmm. to protect themselves when they're reproducing. In other words, having Defense. flowers. Right. right. And so if the leaves of the plant are less palatable in circumstances when they're blooming well then it may discourage animals and other things from eating those leaves and preventing them from getting the energy they need through photosynthesis absolutely now you can chew one small leaf a day to ward off headaches Chewing two fresh feverfew leaves decreased migraine headaches in 70% of subjects in a United Kingdom study. Wow. Feverfew also comes in 50 or 100 milligram capsules, sometimes in combination with vitamin B or magnesium, substances mm. known to help with migraines. That's right. The tincture, however, didn't seem to have any benefit over the use of the placebo in the study. Now, some some people are sensitive to one or more of the 40 compounds in feverfew and develop mouth ulcers, so keep an eye out for oral symptoms. Pregnant women should not use feverfew. One last thing you should know, herbal remedies vary in quality based on the same factors that differentiate a fine vintage of wine from a bad one. Soil conditions, rainfall, extremes of temperature, time of harvest, and other factors can be a big difference in the results that you'll get from a medicinal herb. That's why you don't see medicinal herbs actually produced by pharmaceutical companies, or rarely. You can't least. regulate the yeah, dosage. Because it's very hard to depend on the exact medicinal right. quantity of benefit you'll We've get. got 40 different compounds just in feverfew. If one or another, which might be the active ingredient, which they're you know they're unsure of what exactly inside feverfew is is helping the migraines or the other symptoms, it could be stronger, or right. or or weaker weaker in that particular harvest. And from plant to plant, next to each other can even be different. So there's no way to say this. Feverfew capsule will definitely work right. every single right. time. Right, you would, you, you know, you would say, well, you know, the vintage, the 2011 vintage of <laughs> Feverfew was, was very, work. yeah, it was very strong. And, right. But you know, 2013 really didn't do much. Yeah, so, so that that is again a rationalization as to why the pharmaceutical companies are not putting them and saying on the bottles, this is exactly the milligrams, and this will help this issue you can't do studies when you right. might end up doing a study with a very 
weak compound, your fever few that time could be so much weaker than just a, a harvest next to it. Exactly. But fever few I, is especially good in migraines. I'm glad you mentioned mm-hmm. that because I know that that really does make a difference for some people. So it's something that you might consider if you are a sufferer from migraines. Hey, are you a longtime prepper who's wondering how to get the whole family on a preparedness bandwagon? They couldn't care less, some of them. Huh. Yeah, that's right. Well, we've designed a fun new board game called Doom and Bloom Survival. And that's going to get those surly teenagers to put down those smartphones and get together for an entertaining and challenging family game night. You know, we are honored to be the Teaching Preparedness Resource of the Week uh, for mid-July by the Prepared Family blog, the preparedfamily.org. And I think that it is really a pretty good way to learn the critical decision-making that comes along with a survival scenario without having to be in one yourself at the moment. And having fun while you're doing it. And that's right. So if you're interested, check the game out at survivalboardgame.com. You know, I read today that they actually have come up with an Ebola vaccine that they feel is highly effective. The country of Guinea, in, of course, collaboration with the World Health Organization, actually put together a study with this potential vaccine, and they inoculated 4,000 people that were close contacts of Ebola patients, as well as 1,200 medical workers, and they found that there was a very, very strong response in terms of preventing the disease. Believe it or not, Ebola still does occur. There were, I think, eight cases or something like that last week, but it it is not totally eradicated, but is down to very, very small, small numbers. And perhaps this Ebola vaccine, which is called uh, EBOV, I believe, is going to be able to help us. Well, I mean, if we vaccinate the family members of an Ebola patient, we can form maybe a sort of a protection ring around that patient. In other words, the people that are going to be in contact with that patient are not going to be affected and therefore they can't go and affect other infect other people. So I think that this is a really incredible incredible development that just making the effort to develop a vaccine actually results in an effective vaccine and within really it's, it hasn't been a year yet since the epidemic was in full swing. I mean now you hear very little about it, but I saw this actually yesterday it was actually yesterday's news and it amazes me that we're still hearing about what's going on with ebola and and that there may be an actual effective vaccine so i think this is awesome news and let's hope that this can be eradicated eventually with a widespread vaccine program i know some people don't like vaccines but boy the percentage of people that die from Ebola is very high and so you certainly don't want a lot of cases of it because that is just an awful awful disease so good news on the medical front you know we were just talking about how fever few was first used like 4,000 years ago it's its Greek name or it's a scientific name is Parthenium or Tanacetum Parthenium which has to do with the Parthenon because a Greek worker apparently was saved 
by using Feverfew yeah. after some fall that he had from the roof of the Parthenon, no less. And everybody who knows me knows that I'm a real history nut. I love Gosh, history. I hope you guys are too because <laughs> I'm going to talk about history for a couple of minutes. Uh, history of herbal medicine. And we'll talk. I want to talk about herbal medicine in ancient Egypt. Now, the oldest recorded system of medicine originated in Egypt. I mean, mm -hmm. this is really the first true, at least surviving, civilization. I think there was maybe another one or two in Mesopotamia. But uh, that one was not as developed as Egypt, which became truly a, a regional A true power. civilization. Uh, right, exactly. Now, in its oldest surviving medical text which is called the Ebers, E-B-E-R-S, papyrus, uh, dates about 1,500 years before recorded even Chinese medicine. That's number one. Wow. And it listed 700 medicinal herbs. And several of these herbs uh, are still used commonly today. Aloe vera is listed. Senna is listed. Identified, clearly identified as what we use today. I mean, it's Amazing. pretty... Amazing. Pretty cool. I mean, it was the first recorded attempt to separate magic from medicine, really, if you think about it. And there are almost a thousand herbal recipes in it. Uh, concerns a, a great variety of diseases or symptoms. It really was the medical text of its time. And I think it was pretty cool because it only recommended magical incantations for about 12 of those thousand illnesses. So that you know, considering that everything was magic back then, I think that's pretty darn amazing. Now, now interestingly, when mm -hmm. a physician would see a patient, he would make pronouncements. Okay. And he, there were three pronouncements that he made at the very beginning of every diagnosis. Okay. He would say, an ailment which I will treat. He would say, an ailment with which I will contend, and an ailment not to be treated. And luckily, the hopeless people with the ailments not to be treated were only were only three of these thousand diseases, which was actually pretty good. The papyrus then states what the physician should do for that particular problem until, and, and they deal with it in one of three ways. One, until he recovers. Un set two until the period of the injury passed by and three until thou knowest that he has reached decisive point well i bet you know what the, <laughs> the decisive, decisive point, point is <laughs> of no return going to the afterlife <laughs> wow that was pretty interesting you know inter uh, egyptian physicians unlike today were pretty much deified they were considered to be almost magical people in their own right and i think that is pretty cool imhotep which was the in name Hotep. of the which was the name of the mummy in, in the mummy the mummy the movie is, the mummy is actually the earliest physician in history whose name has been recorded so that's the interesting the first physician that's right and that was approximately 3000 BC wow so pretty impressive so Incredible. they worshiped him as a hero as a blameless physician hmm not too many of those these days yeah <laughs> <laughs> And later still, he became the god of medicine. So, pretty interesting. So, I think that 
Imhotep. I think that we should talk a little bit more about natural medicine. I yeah. think it's very interesting, and you can tell us a lot. I think I will absolutely start discussing different methods of herbal, mes- herbal medicine. This is really a part two of an herbal show that we did a few weeks ago, and it's from one of my favorite, favorite books called Prescription for Herbal Healing. An easy-to-use A-to-Z reference to hundreds of common disorders and their herbal remedies by Phyllis A. Balch. That's B-A-L-C-H. And this part today is going to discuss the materials of herbal treatment. Now, many, perhaps 75% of all conventional medicines are refinements of herbal medicines. And you've heard us discuss this before. The isolation, for instance, of morphine from opium in 1806 was the first time that chemical methods were used to extract the active chemical constituents of an herb. Now, most people think of aspirin, but that was actually the first one. The chemical processes used to isolate morphine led to the production of codeine, the widely used cough suppressant, which actually I need now because I keep coughing. Sorry, guys. Chemical processing of kinchona bark yielded quinine, which is a malaria treatment, which is still used today. And there's a lot of examples of that. Synthesizing chemicals that are very similar to the natural occurring active constituents of an herb allows for the manufacture of potent fast-acting drugs that can be mass-produced. Of special importance to drug makers is the fact that synthetic chemical compounds can be patented. Aha! While herbs cannot, the law grants exclusive rights to the makers of chemical drugs that it does not grant to the manufacturer's manufacturers of herbal products and herbal medicine patent protection allows drug companies to sell chemical drugs at much higher prices so let's talk about some of the ways that uh, you can take herbal medicine capsules capsules consist of a two-part gelatin shell whose two halves are fitted together after the herb is placed inside. In addition to gelatin, the capsule shell may contain glycerin or another softening agent and water. Many but not all encapsulated formulations of herbal remedies also contain flavoring agents, dyes, and preservatives. It's important to read the label if it is necessary to avoid these artificial ingredients. Some herbs such as devil's claw and peppermint are deactivated by contact with digestive juices so think about that other herbs can be so diluted that they become ineffective if they come in contact with food and water in the stomach capsules for those herbs are given an enteric coating with a cellulose fiber which delays the release of the herb until the capsule has passed the stomach It is important to take enteric-coated capsules one hour before rather than during or after meals. Particles uh, as large as the capsule remain in the stomach until all other food in the stomach is digested. If the enteric-coated capsule is taken with food or after food, it will be exposed to all the stomach acid released to digest the food and may release the herb prematurely. Extracts are concentrated preparations of herbs. Liquid extracts, more commonly called fluid extracts, 
combine one part of the herb with one part water or alcohol or one part of the herb with one part of a mixture of alcohol and water. Solid extracts are made by dissolving the chopped herb in a chemical solvent such as acetone. After the herb is soaked in the solvent, the liquid is filtered out and gently dried at low heat for use in capsules or tablets. Drying the herb removes all the solvents, leaving only the desired constituents of the herb behind. The chemical constituents of an herb are much more concentrated in a solid extract than in the raw herb. Granules consist of powdered herb held together with binders. The binder may be cellulose fiber, gelatin, milk sugar, or table sugar. Among other possibilities, the granules may or may not be fashioned into pills or tablets. Granules are most often frequently encountered in imported Chinese patent medicines used for the treatment of digestive complaints. Lozenges have a round, oblong, tablet-like appearance, but different from tablets in that they are not made by compression, but are molded or cut from pliable mixtures and a small amount of the herb. Medicinal spirits or essences are the volatile oils of herbs preserved in a mixture of water and alcohol. The most widely used medicinal spirit, peppermint, is made by dissolving the oil extracted by crushing peppermint leaves in alcohol. Other medicinal spirits are made by distillation. To distill an herb, the herb is pulverized and mixed with alcohol. It is allowed to stand until the oil glands in the herb have burst and released their aromatic oils. The essential oil is heated, evaporated, and captured in a still and preserved in alcohol. People who have alcohol-related medical problems should avoid medicinal spirits. Plant juices are pressed from finely chopped herbs to which water has been added. Commercial preparations of plant juices are pasteurized. Herbs used in over-the-counter plant juices include birch leaf, dandelion, garlic, radish, and St. John's warts. Sugar sweetened syrups are an invention of ancient Arabic healers that reached Europe in the early Middle Ages. The word syrup is derived from the Arabic sherbet, meaning a sugary juice beverage. The sweet taste of syrup makes it the preferred form of herbs to be given to children. Syrups usually consist of two-thirds sugar, the high sugar content making it impossible for microbial contaminations to grow. Diluting a syrup invites bacterial growth. Syrups that are made without sugar should be stored in the refrigerator. Tablets are made by compressing granules or powders into a cylindrical mold. Tablets usually contain very small amounts of an extract suspended in a binder with colors, flavors, lubricants, and disintegrating agents. Coated tablets are co covered with dyes, fat, sugar, and wax to protect the medicinal ingredients inside. Coating tablets protects them against heat, light, moisture, and breakage, and masks any unpleasant taste in the medicinal core. Teas can be prepared from single herbs or mixtures of herbs. Teas for acute conditions are almost always brewed with single herbs. Teas for chronic condition and the teas used in traditional Chinese medicine are almost always mixtures of herbs. Of all the forms in which herbs may be used, teas have the gentlest and slowest effects on the body. The degree to which the active constituents of the herbs used to make the teas will be absorbed 
is unpredictable. For this reason, the best way to describe the results from taking a tea is to drink the tea, wait, and see. Despite their unpredictable benefits and their slow onset of action, teas are especially safe. Teas are usually the best way to use herbs to treat infants and younger children. Tinctures. Um, tincture is a mixture of herbs, alcohol, and water. Children's tinctures usually substitute glycerol for alcohol. Although the main ingredient in any tinctures are alcohol, glycerol, and or water, many tincture labels are printed with separate lists of herbs and the liquids in which they are dissolved. People who are sensitive to alcohol or parents buying tinctures for small children need to read both lists to make sure the liquid with which the tincture is made is not alcohol. Now these are just the most common forms of herbal medicine. Uh, there are others and it's actually important that you learn how to actually make some of these. So we'll be discussing that in a future show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine You've been listening Hour to the with Doom Dr. And Bones Bloom and Nurse Amy, medical preparedness Joe experts, and Dr. Amy Bones and Nurse Thanks Amy. so much for Check listening, guys. Check out our guys. website at www. for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. To contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.